But uh, if you don't know, my name is John Crawford. And uh, me and my wife, for the longest time, we served in the campus ministry at Athens, Georgia. But uh, we recently moved seven months ago to Charleston. So that's where we live now. And uh, that's where we serve with the church, uh, being campus ministers. And so I'm excited to be here and to, to share with you guys today. With the retreat, we're talking about take flight, right? That is our theme for the retreat. And this class specifically is called Soaring in Your Faith. You know, the description, who has, does anyone have the, the handout, the flyer? Anyone got it with them? Okay, you want to read real quick what the handout says about what this class is about, just to make sure everybody knows they're in the right class, what this class is about, what we're going to be talking about. Awesome. And so that, that's what this class is. We're going to be talking about, okay, what does the Bible say it looks like to go through the transformation of being in darkness and being in the light? From being someone who is not a disciple of Jesus to being a disciple of Jesus. So that is what we're going to talk about today. We have a, a slew of scriptures. We've got so many scriptures. And so you guys be prepared. We're going to roll through this. We've got time is starting because we're in here late. And so the first scripture we're going to be in today is in John 12, verse 23. You know, in talking about soaring in our faith and being able to be people who have faith, men and women of faith, we cannot start Anywhere else but starting with Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus came to this earth to do for us. And so in John 12, verse 23, it says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You know, we, we, we've maybe heard this passage before and Jesus sees, he sees that his death is a means of displaying what? Of displaying God's glory, of displaying God's love. And you know, when I think about this, I'm like, man, no one in their right mind thinks this way. That's what I love about Jesus. You know, as you guys have been able to study the Bible, you've been able to go through the scriptures and see who is this Jesus guy. And I don't know about you, but when I studied the Bible, I was like so captivated by Jesus. Because I had known so many great people in my life. I had looked up to so many awesome people who I thought were good people, great people, revolutionary people. But no one compared to Jesus. In the way that Jesus loved people, in the way that Jesus viewed challenges, in the way that he allowed himself to be at other people's disposal. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying in this moment. You know, no one in their right mind thinks like this. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about how he must go to the cross. And what does he say? He doesn't say, oh man, I'm going to run from this. He doesn't say, oh man, like, 
for, forget it. I'm going to send somebody else in my place. No, he says, Father, glorify your name. I pray that as I go through this, that you may be glorified, Father, that Jesus was all about God and helping us to be a part and experience God's love. You know, no, no one thinks like this. You guys don't think like this. I don't think like this. No one that we see in our world thinks like this. We are people who like to avoid conflict. We're people that we don't like being blamed for anything. We don't like being falsely accused. So imagine being on the chopping block to be executed, to be murdered. All of us would be doing what we could to escape that trial. And yet Jesus is saying, this is, this is the very reason I came. I came for you. I came for your glory, Father, so that men and women could come to know you and have a relationship with you. You see, Jesus knew that the only way for humanity, the only way for us to experience the very oneness he had with the Father was through death. And it was through his death to be exact. You know, I love this scripture in John 10, 17, that tells us, man, that Jesus chose to die. That Jesus chose to go to the cross for you. Don't think about the person sitting next to you. Don't think about me. Don't think about the world. I know that scripture, John 3, 16, talks about for God so loved the world. Don't think about it that way. Think about it for you. That Jesus went to the cross and died for you. In John 10, 17 through 18, it says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. You know that Jesus isn't like, yeah, I'm forced to do this. He's like, no, I willingly, because of my love for you, am laying down my life will be brutally killed and executed and strung up on a cross for people to make mockery of. I'm willing to go through that for you. You know, yesterday, Lake and Marty, they talked about how we, how you are made in the image of God. But we also spoke about how what complicates that? Sin. How sin complicates the very image that God created, that he created us. He said, that is good. It's very good that God was pleased with his creation. But then sin and the enticement of sin has complicated this very image. And because we are people who commit sin, we need something. Rather, we need someone to atone for us. And this is why Jesus came. For you, you know, check this scripture out in Leviticus 16. In verse six through 10. Old Testament. You know, God has always had a plan for sin. You know, God created us in his image. He wanted things to be good and we mess things up. But God still in his love, in his mercy, still wanted to provide us with a way to be free from sin. And so in Leviticus 16, 6 through 10, it says, Aaron, who was a priest, is to offer the bull of his own sin offering to make atonement for himself in his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by the lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. That even in the time when Jesus wasn't on the earth, that God's people, the Israelite people were struggling with sin. They were people who would love God one moment and the next moment they'd be turning away from God, being enticed by sin, living a life of sin. And so God says, I need to come up with the plan to redeem my people. I need to come up with the plan so that my people can walk in light instead of walking in darkness. And so we get this story that explains to us how in the Old Testament people got their sins forgiven, how they got their sins atoned for. And so what would they do? Essentially, they would bring two goats, okay, and then they would cast lots and they would draw a lot. And one lot would fall to a goat that was designated for the Lord and the other would, uh, would be the scapegoat. And so the priest would kill the goat offered to the Lord and then they would let the blood run, which the blood was to represent the blood poured out for the sins of the people, for the sins of the community. So one of the goats would just be straight up slaughtered and executed in the blood you know, God was using this as an example to see sin has consequences. And so the people would see this, this, this animal slaughtered and they'd see its blood going out and pouring out in, on the altar. And so they would kind of feel a sense of man like, that should be me. Because I'm a sinner, because of the, the ways that I've disobeyed God and turned my back on God, man, that is, that's the position I should be in. And so that's the one goat that gets slaughtered. That's the goat offered to the Lord. Then the priest would take the scapegoat and he would grab its head and he would confess all the sins of the people so that their sins would be transferred into that goat. That that's what the priest would do. That his, with his bloody hands, he would go and he'd grab the head of the goat and he'd just start confessing all the sins of the community, all the sins of the people. And then what he would do is he'd take that goat and it would go out into the wilderness. It'd go out into the wilderness and be left alone, to either die, to be eaten by some kind of animal. And this whole imagery was, is that when all the sins of the people were confessed into that goat, that goat would go out into the wilderness and die. And what would be of those sins? They would be no more. That they would die in the same way that that goat is dead. And that is what Jesus came to be for you. Jesus was the scapegoat for humanity. On, and when he died on the cross, he set you free. In the same way that goat died in the wilderness and those sins are no more, people don't remember those sins, those, those sins are a thing of the past. That is what Jesus came to do for you. Remember, personalize it. Forget that, you know, Jesus died for the world. We know that for you, Jesus went through that. That Jesus was willing to be your scapegoat to set you free. Amen. You know, he set you free by what he did on the cross. That's right. He's given each and every one of us the opportunity to be set free. But you must be willing to take hold of his offering. That's right. You must be willing to take hold of salvation. And it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. We know this. We read the scriptures and Jesus talks all the time about broad is the road and narrow is the road. It is not easy to be a disciple. 
It is not easy to take hold of the salvation that God wants to bestow on you, that God wants to give you. And we're going to talk about that today. You know, the next scripture we're going to be looking at is in Mark 7. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Y'all with me? Come on. So in Mark 7, verse 1, it says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they, came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Yes, uh-oh is right that Jesus, he has no issue calling out the religious people. He has no issue calling out the Pharisees. That Jesus with his disciples, and they've been doing these amazing things of going and preaching the word about the kingdom of God and healing people. And the Pharisees are like, but wait, your guys aren't washing their hands. Like that is so trivial. That is so childish. Like that doesn't matter. And yet what does Jesus say? Jesus calls them out and he says, listen, you guys care more about your traditions about what you think it means to follow God rather than what the scriptures actually say it means to follow God. And he says, your worship is in vain. What does it mean to do something in vain? It's pointlessly. What else? Any other thoughts on what it means to do something in vain? Wasted. For your own righteousness. Maybe to make yourself look better. Yeah. To do something with no result or to no effect. It's useless. I love that word useless. There's no purpose or meaning. It's all for nothing. And that Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and their worship was all for nothing. That it was useless. That their claims and their worship to God were leading them to nowhere. That they weren't living out the commands of Jesus, but solely focused on their human or man-made traditions. And, you know, this is a rhetorical question, but what are some traditions that we hold on to in our faith? Talk about it, bro. You know, we live in a world that is filled with so much tradition when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to what does it look like to follow Jesus? I mean, there are an estimated 200 plus Christian denominations in the United States today. Because we fall into the same pattern as the Pharisees, that we value our traditions. We value the ways that we grew up and the things that we heard more than we value the scriptures. And so for us today, these are things that many of us maybe are experiencing. Maybe we grew up with some traditions that don't align with Jesus and his teachings. 
You know, I think about some denominations, that there are denominations that say baptism is optional. You know that I've heard that before, that baptism isn't important. It's just a sign of an inward faith that you're doing. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You know that there are some denominations that say infant baptism is biblical. Is right that there are so many traditions that people hold on to, and I'm not I'm not faulting you if that is if that is your story, if that is your journey. But I am calling you to see what the Bible says and to respond according to what the Bible says. To not be like a Pharisee. You know, I know that there are denominations that believe saying a prayer for salvation is is what you need. That all you got to do is pray this prayer and you're good. That Jesus will be your Lord and your Savior. Denominations that say once saved, always saved. That you're good. Once, Once you decide you're good in your faith, you can live however you want. You don't have to follow Jesus. You're good. You've got faith. You believe. That our world is telling us to follow these traditions. You know, the Pharisees focused so much on their upbringing and traditions that they missed out on Jesus. They missed out on the Messiah walking in their presence because they were too wrapped up in their traditions, too wrapped up in what is mom and dad going to think? What is my great grandma going to think? That all these thoughts that I know can can be in our hearts and can be in our mindsets that want us to just kind of go with what we feel like we've always been taught and fall in line, that we don't really go to that place of seeing what do the scriptures say. And that's what this class is about. I want to call us. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Bible, along with Jesus, says about eternal life and salvation. We're going to see what the Bible says. We're not going to talk about our traditions. We're going to look at what does the word of God say it looks like to become a disciple of Jesus and to be assured of our salvation. That when we stand before God one day, we don't have to wonder if, ands, or buts if we did it the right way because we followed the scriptures. That there are 200 plus traditions on how to be saved, but only one in the Bible. Only one in the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at today. Are you guys ready? Come on, baby. All right, Mark 1. Mark 1. You know, as we talk about this idea of salvation, who better to learn from? Who better to get, you know, the, the formula, if you would, than from Jesus himself? From God in the flesh himself, what better way? And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, okay, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus teach his disciples it looks like to become a disciple, to have salvation, to go from being someone who is living a life of sin in darkness to being in the light, being freed from your sin, being able to experience God's grace and hope. In Mark 1, verse 14, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The kingdom has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That Jesus comes on the scene and this is the first thing he starts doing is, you know, he spent some time getting his heart right, getting aligned with God in the wilderness. And now he's coming and he's preaching the news about his father. And what kind of news is this? Is this bad news, burdensome news, complicated news? No, it's good news that Jesus is bringing. And in Jesus' message, 
What does he call the people to do? You know, he comes out the gate kind of stating his formula. The kingdom of God has come near. God, the creator of the universe, wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Mm-hmm. That he's not far off in the stars, far off in heaven, separated from humanity, but that he wants, he's come near. He's in your midst. He's in your presence. And that he wants to have an intimate relationship with you. But what's the first thing Jesus says in his formula? He says, you must. He says, repent. You know, in Jesus' message, he calls the people to repent. And when we study that word repent in Greek, what is the Greek word for repent? Metanoia. And that's what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's saying there must be a metanoia, which is there must be a complete change of mind, spiritually and morally, and a compunction, a remorse for something done that Jesus says that this is what it looks like to repent. This is what it looks like. You got to change the way that you're thinking. You got to change your outlook on life. You've got to unlearn some things to learn some new things about who God really is and the kind of life that God really wants you to live. That there was a correlation between, between changing how you think that leads to a change in how you act. And as Jesus comes on the scene, this is the first thing he starts telling the people about the kingdom of God is the, the importance of repentance. You know, I love another passage that talks about repentance. It's in Luke 13, one through five. And I feel like, man, this scripture helps us to really see the, the significance of repentance in our lives, of transforming the way that we think the way that we live, what we prioritize in our lives, that that's what we're called to do as we repent. In Luke 13, verse one, it says, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all those others in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. That once again, Jesus is helping us to understand the weight and the significance of repentance. That as he's coming on the scene to instate God's kingdom and what it means to be a part of that kingdom, that God is the king and God is looking for people to reign with, to live in his kingdom, that he says, you must be a people who repent. That repentance is essential to being saved and comes before we can ever receive salvation. You can't become saved and then decide to repent. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. Unless you repent, you will not be saved. That repentance is a, is a decision that we make. That's right. In our minds and in our hearts, it's taking that leap of faith and saying, you know what? I am going to think and live differently. Amen. And if repentance requires making a conscious decision, then An honest question we must ask ourselves is, how then can a baby repent? (laughs) It's not possible. It takes a conscious decision on our part. And so we have to be someone who in our minds are mature enough to even make that decision 
to repent and to follow Jesus. You see, without repentance in our lives, what is the outcome? We will perish. That these people are like, well, weren't these people worse off sinners? Isn't that why they got punished in that way? Isn't that why their life was demanded from them? And Jesus is like, are you? No. He's like, honestly, don't even worry about them. Worry about you. Worry about you. Stop worrying about everybody around you and their faith. Worry about your faith. Unless you repent. Unless you get serious about God and his word, about the way that God calls you to live your life. Unless you do that, then you yourself will perish as well. And so we have to understand, we have to see that in Jesus's formula on how to become a disciple, on how to receive God's amazing gift of salvation, that repentance is crucial. But back to Mark 1, you know, Jesus comes on the scene. He says, all right, we've, we got to repent. And then what's the next thing Jesus says? We've got to believe the good news. You know, in Jesus' message, he calls people to believe, to believe the good news, to believe the, to entrust, to accept as true. Jesus is calling us to trust in him and to live by his teachings. In other words, to make him the standard of our lives. And that's what we have today in the scriptures. That the scriptures, the Bible, is the way that we get to see, well, what are Jesus' teachings? How do I live like Jesus? How do I come to have faith in the belief? Through the scriptures. And so Jesus says, listen, you've got to repent, but you've also got to believe. You've got to have faith. You've got to trust in who I am. And not just trust temporarily. You've got to trust me completely. That I say that I'm the man that I am. That when I call you to live this life, that you will have peace, that you will have hope. Doesn't mean everything will go right, but that Jesus is calling us to believe. And so, so far, Jesus' formula involves repentance and believing, or in other words, being his disciple. You guys still with me? All right, next scripture we're gonna look at, Luke 9. In Luke 9, verse 23, it says, uh, verse 23 to 25. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You know, if you don't know, the God of the Bible, our God, the one that we've been talking about, that you've been created in his image, he is a God who loves unconditionally. Like he loves you unconditionally. Even in the midst of us being sinners, he still sent Jesus to die for you. It's not like you turned your life around, you started living a good person, and then God was like, okay, now I'm going to send my son. No, when you were at your worst, God decided, man, I'm going to send my son still for that person even at their worst. And so God is a God who loves unconditionally. I mean, for God so loved the world that he did what he sent his one and only son. We, we know this, we hear this. And although God is a God that loves unconditionally, 
We must not get it twisted. Discipleship is a very conditional thing. That God does love you unconditionally, but discipleship is very much conditional. Jesus says that anyone who wants to be my disciple, Jesus says this is an invitation. I'm not forcing you to do anything. You're not obligated to do anything. It's an invitation. If you want to be my disciple, you can. But there are some conditions. You know, I like to think about it. All of who raise your hand if you're in college here. All you guys in classes taking classes. Okay, so oftentimes, if you were okay, let's say you wanted to take anatomy two. What must you do before you take anatomy two? You must take anatomy one. Anatomy one is a prerequisite, right? You have to take that course before you can advance to a more, you know, hard taxing course. And I believe that that is what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's like, listen, the invitation's out there. You can come. You can be my disciple. But guess what? I've got a prerequisite. And that prerequisite is this. You must deny yourself. You must give up your desires, your plans, all these goals and dreams that you have for your life if they do not align with my will. That Jesus is calling us to live a surrendered, submitted life. You know, that's the main point that Jesus is communicating to us. He says, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to come and follow me. But guess what? There, there are some conditions. There are some expectations. And you may hear that and you may be like, whoa, that doesn't sound like what, what I grew up hearing about God's grace. Yeah, God does have grace, but it's very clear that Jesus is like, listen, like, there are some expectations. If you're going to be a part of this kingdom, there's a way that you need to live. And that is what Jesus is talking about in this moment. And to me, when I hear this, when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Man, that sounds a lot like the, the Mark 1 scripture where he says, repent and believe in the good news. That sounds a lot like the same passage to me. And so Jesus is calling you to live a submitted and surrendered life. How good are you at doing that? How good are you at surrendering to Jesus? submitting to Jesus, trusting that Jesus in the way that he is calling you and wants you to live your life is better than the way that you've been living your life. I mean, think about it. The creator of the universe wants to direct your life. If he wants you to be humble enough to trust that he can lead your life. And if he can create a world and galaxies, don't you think he could lead your life? Don't you think he'd be pretty good at that? And that's what he's asking. He's just like, submit to me, humble out to me. Surrender. All right, so so far in Jesus' formula, we've got what? We've got repent. We've got believe. All right, and now what do we've got in Jesus' formula? Discipleship. You've got to live a life of surrender and submission to Jesus. Let's go to our next scripture, John 8. John 8, verse 2 to 11. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman 
caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away at once. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What a, what a powerful. These are the stories that I read when I was in, in, in some of your shoes, studying the Bible, trying to get to know God's character, trying to get to know Jesus' character. These are some of the stories that I read. And I just remember being, man, so amazed by Jesus and his compassion and his love and yet his firmness and directness that this is the kind of man that I want to be like. But we see that there's this, there's this woman who's caught literally in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees, you know, these religious leaders, they bring her before Jesus and they, they kind of throw her at Jesus' feet. It's like, Jesus, you know what we just caught this woman doing? She was caught in the act of adultery. And you, Jesus, you know what Moses' law gives us the right to do. You know what we're called to do, which we would be actually righteous if this is what we did. That the people were living by a moral high ground of sin. And that they were claiming that what this woman did, she deserved to be killed. Her life deserved to be demanded from her. And yet Jesus calls everyone to evaluate their own hearts. That in that moment, Jesus says, okay, you're right. She, she is in sin. But who else here is a sinner? Matter of fact, if you are sinless, why don't you throw the first stone? And all these people start to realize. And the gears in their heads start turning. The gears in their hearts start turning. They're like, I'm just as lost as this woman. In the same way, this woman right here has done something that they would deem unforgivable, worthy of death. Maybe some of us in this room feel that. That we're studying the Bible and we just feel so much shame and guilt from our past. And I, I can relate. I can remember being in a similar place. The way that I used women when I was in high school for my own sexual pleasure and advantage. The way that I treated my parents. You know, I just remember feeling like there's no way I can go back. Like, why would these people ever forgive me? Why would God ever forgive me? And yet Jesus is helping people to evaluate their own hearts. And then Jesus reassures the woman with words of grace and truth, despite what she did. And that is a part of Jesus' formula for us too. That if you're feeling burdened by your old life, 
Now, maybe the reality is, is that you're still holding on to some of that old life. And if you are, then you've got to repent. You've got to remember the first thing that Jesus says, repent and believe. But if there are things that you've done in the past that you're holding on to, you've got to let those things go. You've got to give those things over to Jesus and accept his grace his grace and his truth. You know, with the woman's shame and guilt addressed, what does Jesus do next? Jesus offers her a new life filled with forgiveness, but a call to change, a call to leave her life of sin. You know, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is loving, but Jesus is also direct in calling you to leave your life of sin. That he wants to bestow upon you forgiveness, to have that burden lifted from your shoulders of no longer being weighed down by sin. That he wants to give that to you, but he also is calling you to leave that life. You know, traditions leave people to live how they want and do things when they want to. But understanding forgiveness leads to an eagerness of new life. That when you understand forgiveness, what was this lady? She, she was probably so excited to go back and to change her life. And Jesus forever changed her life because of his interaction with her. And so the next part of Jesus' formula is that we need to see, you need to see your need for forgiveness, which leads to a new life. If you don't see your need for forgiveness, then you're not going to want to change. You're not going to want to be different. You know, lastly, Jesus spells it out for us in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, not just people who look like you and think like you, but of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That Jesus right here, just kind of spells it out for his disciples. He says, listen, go and do this. Go and live this life that I've already been walking you, walking with you in. Go and do this even when I leave. To go and make disciples of all nations. You know, when I think about this passage, it also helps me to see, man, who does Jesus say is a candidate for baptism? Who does he say? He, to me, it sounds like he says a disciple. He doesn't say go and baptize and then make them into disciples. He says go and make disciples and then baptize them. So that there's a part in what Jesus is doing to reaffirm the things that he's already told us in his formula. That someone who wants to get baptized must be already living a life of repentance, a life of believing, a life of surrender, and a life of seeing their need for forgiveness. And that makes a candidate for someone who should be baptized. And so the fourth thing is, man, we've got to see our need for baptism. That I love that Jesus himself gives us the formula 
on how to go from darkness into light, on how to become a disciple and be assured of our salvation. That Jesus explains that for us. And, you know, Jesus later on, what does he do? He ascends into heaven. And before he ascends into heaven, he gives guys like Peter and James, the apostles, he gives them his formula. And he says, guess what, guys? I'm leaving now, but I'm going to give you the same formula that I used to make disciples. And so I want you guys to go into Jerusalem. I want you guys to go into the world and use that very formula to make disciples. And so now we're going to look at what Peter teaches once Jesus leaves earth, what it looks like to become a disciple. The same formula that Jesus used. So in Acts 2, you guys still with me? In Acts 2, verse 22. You know, Peter shares the gospel. The gospel is essentially the good news of Jesus. The good news of what Jesus came to bring us. And in the same way Jesus comes on the scene sharing the good news, Peter starts off, you know, his way of, you know, spreading Jesus' ministry by doing the same thing. In Acts 2, 22 through 24, it says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But even though you've done that, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That we hear this and we're like, oh, are you sure that's good news? That is good news that Jesus came to die for humanity, to die for you. And that even in his death, death was not the end all be all. That for people to hear that, that would have been so refreshing to know. So refreshing to hear that that was really the Messiah. This is the one that God has been promising to send us all along. It was Jesus. Man, this is incredible news for them. And so Peter shares the gospel with them. And then in Acts 2, verse 36, Peter calls them to Jesus's formula, the very formula that Jesus used. Now Peter is about to preach the word and share Jesus's formula with the people. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord, our God, will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You see that Jesus taught his disciples. This is what it looks like 
to tell people about the amazing grace and salvation that God wants to bestow on you. And so what does Peter do? He does the same thing that he's on the scene and he's he's preaching about Jesus. And they're like, what should we do? This guy that we killed is the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's our king. How can we get right? How can we get justified? That in that moment, the people had faith. You have to believe that the things you're hearing about Jesus are legit, that you trust them. If your response is, well, then what shall we do? If they didn't believe, they wouldn't ask, how do we respond? And so they believe, man, this Jesus guy, he's someone we've got to trust. He's someone we've got to follow. It affected them. It cut them to the heart. When something cuts you to the heart, what does that mean? It's deep. I think impacted to the point of action. What does that sound a lot like? Being a disciple? What about repentance, right? Repentance is all a change in your mindset that leads in a change in what? In what you do, how you live. That when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That they felt it. They felt remorse. They felt compunction. That they understood that they needed to change the way that they think. You see, God wants to make a covenant with us. In the same way he made a covenant with the people, the Israelite nations, God wants to make a covenant with you. But what is a covenant? A promise. It's a promise. And it's a promise that says what? It's a promise between how many people? At least two people. There have to be at least two people. And so God wants to make a covenant with you. He wants to make an agreement with you. God says, I'll keep my end of the agreement. I'll fulfill what I've promised to give you. Grace, salvation, peace in life. I'll give you those things. But you've got to uphold your end of the agreement. You've got to make sure you follow through and do your part. That's what a covenant's all about. And if you don't do your part, what does that mean about God? That then God won't fulfill his part because you decided to break the covenant. And so what is our responsibility when it comes to the covenant? What is our responsibility when it comes to salvation? We must be assured and surrendered to Jesus being Lord, or in other words, believing. We've got to believe with more than just saying, yeah, I believe, but believing and allowing our life to reflect it. We've got to be cut to the heart. We've got to understand what Jesus has done and be ready to surrender and to do whatever it takes to be reconciled. That we have to surrender. That we must repent and be baptized. That you must change how you think, which leads to a change in actions. And then we must be immersed in water. For what? What what does Peter say, the immersion in water, baptism, what does that do for us? What does Peter say? To wash our sins away. And what else? What do we get? We get the Holy Spirit. Now, if, if our sins get washed away, that means that we no longer carry around the weight of that sin. In the same way, when Jesus was with that woman who was caught in adultery, 
And he says, no one's here to condemn you, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. In the same way she probably felt freed and released, that is what baptism does for us. That we get our sins forgiven in the Holy Spirit. And that this is a promise not only for the people who were there in that moment when Peter was preaching, but he says, this is also for those who are far off. That is us in this room. That is you in this room. That wasn't just a promise 2,000 years ago. This is a promise today that you can experience this same kind of salvation. You know, in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, this is a scripture that, that talks about baptism, that gives us a little bit more insight on baptism. And in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, it says, For Christ also suffered once for, this, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I love breaking down this scripture. You know, what is it that Peter says the flood or what? Yeah. What is it that Peter says the flood was supposed to symbolize in, in the days of Noah? What is it that the flood did? Yeah. He said it, it washes over them. And I don't know if you guys ca- caught that, but Peter is very specific in saying it is the water. That saves them. He says, Noah, uh, in verse 20, those who were disobedient long ago, eight and all were saved through water. That water is what saves us. And it's not like water has some supernatural property. You can't just go out and run in some water and be like, oh, my sins are forgiven. You can't just take a shower and be like, my sins are forgiven. It's not that way. But it's through a pledge of a clear conscience through repentance, through Jesus being Lord and being surrendered to who Jesus is, that in our faith, baptism, the immersion in water, has a miraculous impact on our lives. That that Peter makes this clear, that they were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt. You're not taking a shower or bath. It's something deeper when believed and lived out in faith. That baptism, like the flood, cleanses the world by washing sins away. And the reality is, is this. What keeps us separated from God? It's sin. Sin keeps us separated from God. And if we're standing before God one day, not going through Jesus's formula, we haven't been baptized. We haven't, we haven't repented. We haven't believed. We haven't done any of these things. Or maybe we have, or we didn't do them in the proper way. And if you're standing before God one day and you've got sin, does that mean God can have a relationship with you? 
No. No. No matter how much he loves you, because he does love you, he can't have a relationship with you because of sin. And so if baptism is a thing that washes our sins away, then baptism is a thing that purifies us and makes us clean when we stand before God. That allows us to be able to have that intimate relationship with God. That baptism is essential. Baptism is the only thing that the Bible talks about in the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene that actually washes our sins away. That this is the conversion process that we see. That this is the way people go from darkness into the light. All throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the New Testament. Outside of miraculous interventions by God, where God is trying to prove a point and God makes it clear when he's trying to prove a point. This is the way that we see people converted. You know, I'm gonna give you guys some homework that, you know, maybe for your time with God tomorrow, sometime today, go and look at the conversion of Saul to Paul in Acts 9, 1 through 19. And then ask yourself these three questions as you're reading through that passage. When did Paul put his faith in Jesus? So the scripture again is Acts 9, 1 through 19. And then the, the first question you can ask yourself as you're trying to really get this formula down. When did Paul put his faith in Jesus? When did Paul repent? As you're reading that story, when, when, when did he put his faith in Jesus? When did he repent? And then when did Paul get baptized? Ask yourself those three questions. And then after you ask those questions and try and figure them out, turn to, you'll go and read Acts 22, 6 through 18. Yeah, Acts 22, 6 through 18. And so we're wrapping up here, guys. I, I, I hope that this was helpful. And, you know, the reality is, is that the gospel, God's plan of salvation, everything that Jesus came to live and embody, it demands a response. And the question is, what is your response going to be? You know, we look through the Bible and we see that people responded differently to the good news. You know, in Acts 24, 24 through 25, there's a name, there's a man named Felix. And it says several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control. And the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. You know that Felix puts Paul off until a time that's convenient for him. And I think some of us may be tempted to do that. That we may be tempted to say, well, I've just, I've got time. You know, my life is busy right now. I'll get to God. I'll get to God later. I'll take these Bible studies. I, you know, one a week is good. I, it's fine. 
But I love that this passage said that that's what Felix did. Felix is like, Paul, enough is enough. Come back later. And I want to challenge you guys, don't let this be you. Don't hear about God's plan of salvation. Don't hear about the relationship that God wants to have with you specifically and put it off. Don't put it off. Don't say, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, you know, but years later, or I'm not ready yet. Now is the time. Now is the time to accept what God wants to give you, what Jesus came to bring you. Now is the time. So instead of being like Felix, I want to encourage us to be like the disciples. That when Jesus called them in Mark 1, what did they do? They immediately dropped their nets. They dropped everything and decided to be about Jesus. And I hope that all of you in this room today, no matter where you're at in your journey, that you can decide to give it all your efforts so that you can have a relationship with God and so that you can soar and take flight in your faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, guys, I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we can head out of here.